everybody. This is so unusual preaching to a congregation of nobody. It reminds me of my um, very first few services as a pastor many years ago. But I hope you are watching this from the comfort of your own home with your loved ones. And I encourage you right where you're at to stand to your feet. Everybody in the room, stand up. Even I, I'm serious. I can see you. I can see you. Stand up. Everybody stand up and repeat after me. Ready? I am anointed. God has a great plan for my life. And I will fulfill my destiny. Okay, before you sit down, I want you to pass an offering plate and take up an offering. I'm just kidding. I want you to sit down and enjoy yourself. If you're by yourself, you can high five yourself and say, it's good to see you. No, it's good to see you. No, you're looking good today. No, you're looking good today too. So greet everybody in your room with you. And we're going to have church. I want you to open up your Bibles and you can turn to... Um, Let's see, you can turn to Psalm 91. I'm just going to read you Psalm 91 at the very end of our service today. Um, but you could also turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Uh, we're going to look at verses 25 to 34. And if you're watching this, I want to encourage you to pause it right where we're at. And the sermon handout is somewhere on our YouTube channel. It's somewhere on Facebook. You'll find it. Click on it. And you can pull it up. Somebody in the family can pull it up. Or you can print it out or whatever. But I want you to have the sermon handout, okay? So get your sermon handout, pause the video, uh, pull out a pen, pull out your piece of paper, take some notes. And for the next few minutes, we have a special service for you. Uh, you just heard some of our worship. Uh, we have a parody at the end of the sermon today. And then we have another sermon for you. Big Tom, 92-year-old, one of my mentors, Big Tom Britton, is going to also preach as well. So you get a whole full service. My sermon is going to be short. Uh, because we have a, a double sermon for you, but you need it. If you've been cooped up in your house, you need it. And so today, uh, for your notes, I want to talk to you about fear. I want to talk to you about the fear of dying. The fear of catching a virus that could kill you. The fear of losing money. The fear of losing your home. Of The fear of the economy crashing. I want to talk to you about fear today. The number one thought that stops us from fulfilling our destiny, I believe, is fear. Fear stops us from stepping out in faith. Fear stops us from obeying God. Fear stops us from, from lifting our hands in church because we're afraid of what people are going to think about us. Fear stops us from wearing clothes that we want to wear that may have flowers on them because we're scared somebody's going to make fun of us. Fear stops us from giving because we're scared we're not going to have enough for ourselves. Uh, fear stops us from talking to people about Jesus. We're afraid we're going to be rejected. Uh, fear stops us from being ourselves and laughing and enjoying our life and trying new things. In fact, several places in the Bible, uh, fear is talked about as a spirit. Just as there is a spirit of wisdom or a spirit of peace or a spirit of faith, there's also a spirit of fear. The spirit of fear in your home, if you allow it there, it can give your children nightmares. Uh, the spirit of fear can cause you anxiety and stress, and you'll be laying in bed sweating, afraid of what tomorrow is going to hold. The spirit of fear always wants to stop us from stepping out and doing what God's called us to do. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down or circle it on your handout. But fear and faith both ask us to believe for something to happen in the future. Fear and faith both ask us to believe for something to happen in the future that we've not yet seen. 
Faith asks us to believe that what God said, what his word said will happen, even though we hadn't seen it. Fear asks us to believe the opposite, even though we haven't seen it. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is to be sure of things we hope for and to be certain of things we cannot see. You might could say fear is the same thing. Fear is dwelling on things that haven't even happened yet and believing for things that we don't even know are going to happen. Fear and faith are opposites. It seems like, though, we have more faith in our car than we do our God. Because if I were to ask you to go get in your car and drive somewhere today, I don't think any of you would worry that your car is not going to start. You'd get in your car, and as soon as you put the key in the ignition and crank it up, you believe you have the faith that it's going to start up and you're going to be able to drive somewhere. You have that faith. Because of all the previous times that your car has started up when you put the key into the ignition, okay? I want you for the next few minutes to think about all the times that God has not let you down. All the times that God has come through for you. All the miracles that he's done in your life. The people that he's brought into your life. The prayers that he's answered. The doors that he's opened. If God's done it a thousand times before, don't you know he's going to get you through this next season of your life? Some of us seem to have more faith in an automobile made by man than in God's word written by God himself. Um, I heard about this lady every night for like 30 years. She always thought that there was a burglar that was in her house downstairs. And so each night she'd make her husband get up and beg him, just go check the windows, check the doors, make sure everything's locked. She lived her life in total fear. And one night, just as she did hundreds of times before, she thought she heard something. She told her husband, please go downstairs again. I think there's a burglar in our house. And he said, honey, come on. I've gone down thousands of times. She begged him and begged him. So he went downstairs. This time, though, however, as soon as he got to the bottom of the stairway, he was looking through the barrel of a gun. The burglar said to him, don't make a sound. Just give me all your valuables. So the man gave the burglar his money. He gave him his watch, a few more things. The burglar turned around to run off and the man said, hey, 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 wait a minute. You can't leave yet. I need you to come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been expecting you for 30 years. And it seems like a lot of people I know are expecting the wrong things to happen and they wonder why it keeps happening to them. It says in Matthew 9, 29, have what your faith expects. You know, if you get a pain in your side, you know, you start thinking about, oh, my mom died of that disease and it started with the pain in her side. But faith says, you know what? I'm believing the pain won't last. By the stripes of Jesus, I'm already healed. Business is slow. Things are happening in the economy. Fear says, go ahead and shut the doors. It's not going to work out. You're going to lose everything. Faith says that God can make a way even in the desert. And I just realized that my notes actually say God can make a way even in the desert. So, so either one. But the point is, it's just as easy to fear as it is to faith. It takes the same amount of energy for either one. So I have two points for you today because it's a shorter sermon than normal. So two points. Point number one for your notes is this. Fear has to be dealt with immediately. It has to be dealt with immediately. The longer we entertain fear, the deeper it gets on the inside of us, the bigger it becomes in our minds, and the harder it gets to step out in faith. And it starts to control you. 
You begin to talk certain ways and act certain ways. You don't even realize it, but it's all based on fear of what's going to happen in the future. Uh, fear, honestly, begins with a seed of worry. It says in uh, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, if you got your Bibles, you can always pause this at any time, but Matthew 6, 25 through 34, it tells us seven times not to worry. Seven times. It says, don't worry about food, don't worry about drink, don't worry about clothes. It says, can worry make you live longer? It says, what little faith you have, people who don't know God worry about such things. Instead, it says, put God first and he'll always provide for you. The thing, the way worry turns into fear is, worriers always ask the question, uh, what if? What if I lose my job? What if I contract this virus? What if I die? What if this happens? Okay, so that's what worry does. But the way it turns into fear is, is when you don't answer the what if question. In other words, I need you to just take a second and I need you to answer the what ifs. Okay, what if you lose your job? Well, let's go ahead and answer it so it won't cause you fear and consume your mind. What if you lose your job? Well. God has opened up so many doors in your past. He's brought you so far. He's brought you this far and he has not yet ever dropped you. So if you lose your job, let's go ahead and write it out. Well, there's some great scenarios. God could give you a better job. Well, there's, that's a good one. God could help you open up your own business. Okay, let's go to some worst case scenarios. Worst case scenarios, you don't have income come in for a while and you, you have to rely on God more than you never have in your life. Let's go to a worst, worst case. You lose your job, you lose your house, and you die. Okay, let me just, let me just take care of something that you may have uh, been worrying about. Um, if you ever worry about whether or not you're going to die, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. Every single one of you are going to die. Your loved ones are going to die. Your children are going to die. We're all going to die. That's actually not the worst case scenario. That's actually a really good case scenario. If you're a believer, it means you're going to be in heaven one day. So go ahead and answer the question. What if I die? I'll be in heaven. What if my children die? Well, you know what? They'll be in heaven with me because I know they're raised in the house of the Lord. And I believe that they've received the grace of God that it takes to be saved. So what's there to worry about? God's come through a thousand times before. He'll come through a thousand times again. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 3, and this is really a good coronavirus scripture. It says, sensible people see danger and take refuge, but an unthinking person will suffer later. What that means is it means use wisdom. And if you sense danger, take refuge, but don't live your life based on fear. Answer the void of questions. What if the economy crashes? What if I lose my house? What if somebody passes away? Answer the questions. And I even encourage you to write it out. Write out answers that line up with God's word. But don't live your life worrying about what if, what if, what if. That'll turn into fear and it'll destroy your future. Every time God wants you to step out in faith, the enemy always sends fear to cause you to run from what God wants you to do. In other words, what we're going through right now could possibly be one of the greatest events of your life if you'll see it as opportunities to step out in faith and not run and hide in fear. When David faced his greatest adversary ever, it says in 1 Samuel 17, 48, David took his sling in his hand 
And he ran quickly to the battle line to fight the Philistine face to face. Why did David run quickly to the battle line? Because he knew the longer he just looked at Goliath, the longer he watched the news reports, the longer he listened to all the negative things going on, the bigger it would be in his mind and it would affect his very physical body. If David had stood there and watched Goliath hour after hour after hour, he would have never faced him. He would have never ran out there to fight him. But the Bible says when he saw him, he immediately went to the battle line. Don't ever let fear stop you from running to the battle line. Um, I remember when I first started pastoring, it was about two years until I ever had an altar call. I was so afraid that when I got done preaching, if I gave an altar call, that nobody would ever come down. I was afraid nobody would want me to pray for them because I was so young. Um, I was afraid that nobody would ever want to give their heart to Jesus after I preached. I was just in fear. Well, finally, I built myself up. I was all week long. I was, you know, pumping myself up and I'm going to have my first altar call, first altar call. It was like two years into preaching and I finally gave my first altar call and the whole church came down. I mean, I was just, I was sweating. I was excited. I was nervous. And so the first guy I go and pray for I thought for sure his name was Harold. And so I go to him and I, I lay hands on him like the Bible says. And I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, bless Harold. And Lord, just protect Harold. And Lord, thank you for Harold. Step up. And I'm, I prayed this great prayer over this guy. And I was just about to go to the next person to pray for them. And the guy grabbed my hand and he opened up his eyes. He looked at me and he said, my name's not Harold. And so I said, well, maybe that's the new name God's given you. God's given you here. His real name was Robert. But anyway, I said, Lord bless Robert too. But it's so funny. The first time I choose to step out in faith and do something that helps change the lives of people around me, the enemy always sends something to try to cause you to back down. I've never stopped having altar calls, even if I didn't get the people's name right or not, whenever they come down to the altar. Okay, uh, let me continue. Fear is like a fog. I was reading the other day and a dense fog that covers seven city blocks, a hundred feet thick is equivalent to one glass of water. Seven blocks of fog can fill up one glass of water. And I believe that's what fear is like in our minds and in our life. It looks big. It looks intimidating, but compared to God, it's just a bunch of vapors that can fill up a small glass. Mark Twain said, I've had some terrible misfortunes in my life, some of which actually happened. And for a lot of you, I believe that's what your life is like. You spend so much time thinking about what if this happens? What if this happens tomorrow? What's going to take place next month, next year that you miss out on where God has you right now? The uh, Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a disciplined mind. In other words, we cannot be afraid unless we're dwelling on fearful thoughts. You cannot be afraid unless you're dwelling on fearful thoughts. So this should be a great time in your life to turn off the media and turn off the news and start turning on some sermons when you're at your house. Don't let your children hear all this talk of what's going on in the world either. My second point for you today is this. Fear is contagious. 
Fear is very contagious. So we have to be careful what we allow to play in our homes. We can't be playing scary movies and, and evil movies and, and, and playing, you know, evil board games and thing, you know, um, what's that, Ouija boards. We can't have any of that stuff and expect to have the spirit God wants us to have in our own house. Watching things like that, hearing all the news reports, it can greatly affect your children. And just as fear is contagious, faith is also contagious. And just as I can't wait to get you back in this church and us come together as a family, because we are contagious. You can't come to Solid Rock and not laugh. You can't come to Solid Rock and not feel the presence of God. You can't come here and leave this place without expecting bigger things in your life than what you had whenever you came into this place. I encourage you during this time, turn on some sermons. There's some really great preachers out there. You know, turn on Stephen Furtick and, 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 and T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer. They don't look as good as me, but they're good preachers. Turn them on. Uh, faith is contagious, but fear is as well. I was reading about this experiment that was done with these two groups. There was a group of policemen on one side of the room and a group of just regular citizens on the other side of the room, pedestrians. And they were, the policemen were doing that part of the training course where they taser each other. They have to experience what it's like to be tasered. But the way this worked, this experiment worked was they hooked up some things to the, 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 the brains of the policemen and the brains of the people that were watching the taser. And they were trying to measure their brain waves throughout the process. Uh, the one group that was being tasered, they measured their brain waves and so forth. And the people that were watching were having their brain waves measured. And even though the second group was not being tasered, they were just in the room, they were just watching the policemen do it, they experienced the exact same brain waves, the exact same fear as the people who were actually being tasered. The scientists concluded and said, just seeing other people's fears are enough to make us afraid. Just watching, just listening to someone else's fears. Or, and this is scientists, okay? So we believe that emotionally, mentally, physically. The Bible says that's true spiritually as well. Um, once when I first started pastoring, I had a small group of people. I, I loved them dearly. And I wanted, of course, what was best for their life. And I wanted to help them grow. And there was this one lady that was coming to church. And uh, she was very wealthy. And she worked at one of the... Uh, prestigious companies here in Myrtle Beach that kind of owns half of Myrtle Beach. And so uh, her influence and her words carried a lot of weight because of her position in society. And one Sunday she came to me and she said that God told her to tell me, I think this was in like 2007, 2008, and there was some type of uh, something going on in society, in the economy, something crazy similar to what's going on now. Not as bad as now, but something like that. And she told me, she said, God told me to tell you that you need to warn all your church members that the economy is about to crash. Everyone's going to lose their jobs and food is going to be scarce. And she said, if you really love your people, you'll tell them to store up toilet paper, water and canned goods for the next few months. And she left me with that. Man, I was young and I was starting to get afraid. I didn't know what to do. And uh, all week long, I thought, do I need to tell the church that? Do I need to help these people? I love my people. I don't want them to be without. What do I do? And I prayed about it. I prayed about it. 
And God showed me there wasn't any wisdom behind what she was saying. There wasn't anyone who I really admired who was backing that up. There wasn't anyone who was intelligent when it came to what was going on in the world at the time backing that up. It was just this one woman telling me her fears. I chose that week not to say anything to the church about it. And nothing happened. There was no shortage of food. There was no shortage of water. Except this lady, I remember she showed me a picture. Her whole entire garage from floor to ceiling was filled with toilet paper, water, and canned goods. And she was the only one that ended up using it. And she probably used it for the next three years. The point is, I didn't want to act on fear because wisdom did not back up what she was saying. It says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. So just as we can be talked into having fear, we can also be talked into having faith. Just as we can be talked in to making decisions and staying up at night worrying and living stressed out based on fear, we can also be talked into making decisions, staying up thinking about how good God is, preparing for good things based on faith in what his word says. Um, I heard about this guy. He was going to work one day, and all his friends at work decided to play a trick on him. So when he got to work Monday morning, he was happy-go-lucky. Everything was fine. He was having a good morning. But when he walked by the receptionist at his office, she said, Are you okay? You look really pale today. He said, uh, I, I, I'm fine. I mean, everything's fine. She said, Okay, okay, no worries. So then he gets into the office. About 10 minutes after he's at his desk, one of his coworkers comes in and says, Man, are you tired? You don't look up to par. Is something wrong? He said, no, no nothing's wrong. I'm, I'm doing okay. So he went back to work. About 20 minutes later, another co-worker came in and said, do you have a fever? This guy started to loosen up his tie. He said, you know what? I am feeling a little bit warm. A few minutes after that, his boss called him into the office. He said, man, you look terrible today. What's wrong with you? By 10 a.m., that man went home sick, and there was nothing wrong with him. He got talked into living in fear. Do you know that 90% of all chronic patients who visit a physician share one common symptom, and that's fear? Fear of losing a job, fear of being exposed for some secret sin, fear of getting old, Fear of dying. And I'm here to tell you today, none of those fears should weigh on your heart. If you're afraid you're going to be exposed for something you're doing wrong, take it to Jesus. Stop doing it wrong. Receive his grace. If you're afraid of getting old, listen, I believe that in your oldest years, you're, you'll produce more fruit for the kingdom of God than you ever did in your young years. If you're afraid of dying, which is a horrible fear to have, give your life to Jesus. You should look forward to the day that you take your last breath on earth. I want to close with just a little a scripture from Mark chapter 5. Um, this man, Jairus, fell at the feet of Jesus and he begged Jesus to heal his 12-year-old daughter who was at home dying. Uh, most people... Um, would in that case just be sitting at home full of fear, upset, worried. But this man did the right thing. He went straight to Jesus, straight to Jesus. Unfortunately, Jesus kept getting interrupted by people 
And finally, this guy who was friends with Jairus showed up where he and Jesus were headed to the house. And he said, Jairus, don't worry about bothering Jesus. Your little girl is already dead. One of the most important scriptures in the New Testament, I think, with this story is in Mark 5, verse 36. In the Amplified Bible, it says, overhearing, but ignoring what they said, Jesus looked at Jairus and said, have no fear, only faith, and your daughter will be healed. Now, I think we can understand the line about don't have any fear, just have faith, and you'll see your daughter be healed. I think that's a good line. But more importantly is the beginning of that scripture. It says that Jesus ignored somebody. Now, I know when you think about Jesus, he's carrying a lamb in his hands and he's talking to the little kids and got a big smile on his face. But I want you to picture Jesus going on Facebook and immediately recognizing who he needs to ignore. Picture Jesus turning on the TV and immediately switching channels when he knows what he needs to ignore. And I love the fact that he basically told Jairus, if you ignore the negative voices, then it'll be easier for you to have no fear and only faith and see your daughter be healed. That's my word for you today. I love you. I miss you. We have a parody that we're going to sing for you. My wife's going to do a parody for you. After that, I want to just read Psalm 91 to you. We're going to turn the service over to Big Tom Britton. And um, I'm so thankful for you guys. Thankful for you continued giving to our church, our ministry. Uh, I can't wait to see you again soon. We love you and God bless.
this would be a lot more fun if there were people in the congregation, but I promised to preach for John Paul, and we're doing this by photographic memory, so I hope you'll enjoy this very much. Jesus once said, if I had not come and spoken unto them, we would have been surprised at what would have happened in this world. He's talking to the disciples in the upper room as they prepare for the Last Supper. And as he continues to talk to them, he knows about the gathering storm, but the only he understands fully what's going to happen to him in the future. His arrest, his trial, his conviction, and finally hanging on a cross. And before long, after the cross, he's placed in a tomb that was borrowed. Jesus knew that the success of his ministry depended upon a group of people like those in that room. People who have known him and loved him. And today, in our society, he also depends upon people like you and me. He wanted them to see us that God was chosen by God to serve their fellow man. He wanted them to know that love and undiscouraged goodwill were expressions of the good life of people. As he thought of the multitudes, the troubled, the anxious, the fearful, the confused, the lost, the worried, he thought a little bit about his time and as he sat there with those disciples, these words came to his mind. If I had not come to them and spoken to them. And as I heard those words, my mind began to wander. I turned them over and over in my mind. If I had not come, if I had not spoken to them. And I began to think about the frightful things that would have been happening to people to thousand years ago. Have you ever thought about, was that first Christmas really the turning point in history? You know, they changed the calendar when he was born. Does it matter that a star shone over Jerusalem so the disciples, so that the wise men could come and visit him? Does it matter that the angels sang before the shepherds? Does it matter that a baby was born in that small village, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger? I can tell you one thing, it was not very significant to the people of that time because historians will tell you that no one mentioned the birth of Jesus and only one person, Josephus, mentioned in one sentence of his death would it make any difference to you and me if he had not come? After wondering about this one day and anxiously wondering what would have happened if he had not come, I went to sleep, but I had a troubling dream. And this was my dream. An archeologist was digging in the ruins of Palestine. He found an earthen vessel that had a well-preserved scroll within it. It was dated in the years of Caesar Augustus. The Greek symbols were clear and distinct. 
the story unfolded by Artemis Jewess, who simply said that the life of Jesus did not really happen. That was all made up. The words that were written about him, the things people had to say about him, was all a false story. And then you can imagine what began to happen. People who no longer even thought about Jesus looked at those of us in the church and said, see, we told you. We knew it wasn't true. It didn't really happen. And it was amazing what happened. You know, skeptics begin to say, I told you so, I really did. Cruel men and women, driven by passion for power, were thinking of what was going to happen in the society that they were now basically in control of. In just a few short years, the faith of our fathers disintegrated. Churches closed. The doors were nailed shut. Unruly mobs actually pushed by the police, threw glass through the windows and destroyed the churches as much as possible. The sanctuaries were a shamble. I stood by helpless. I could not help but think of the sanctuary that I had spent time in, the times I'd preached there. And when things were quiet, I would slip in and sit there and wonder what might have been. One day as I sat there, a young couple came in. They had a baby in their arms. They wanted to know what I baptized the baby as I had done so many times. But I thought about what the police had said, how I was told not to baptize anybody, to just let them do the best they could. And when I told them that, I told them that I could not deceive them any longer about God's love. After this couple was sent on the way without me baptizing the baby, a woman came in. She had her face shielded with a scarf so no one would recognize her. When she sat down before me, she simply said, my husband has died. Will you conduct his funeral? And I thought to myself, I know what I've been told. I know what people have said to me. She wanted me to conduct a funeral for a husband that she had been married to for over 60 years. Her husband did not matter to God. I started to quote a verse of scripture to her. Every tear on earth that flows, God the ruler surely knows. And then I remembered how absurd is this? And I told her that the government would bury her husband without any thrills. And then all of a sudden, a young person came running into the sanctuary out of breath and said to me, come down to the pavilion with me quickly, come down to the pavilion. I followed her down to the pavilion and there were the city leaders throwing every book that had anything to do with Jesus into a pile. They were burning books, Shakespeare, Carlisle, Tolstoy, Dickens, the Bible, nothing fit would really be left to read. The government had taken over the authority of God and God was their official announcement, told me that I could not say the things I wanted to say. Once I'd been free, my loyalty was only to Jesus. In his name, I couldn't denounce, denounce the government's process. I could 
do those things that I believe to be true. I could talk about corruption, dirty politics, speak out against sin, but my ordination had come from God and I no longer could say anything about it. Now, since Jesus Christ never lived, it was my imagination that Artemis Judas, the state was nothing, the church was nothing, and then I woke. I was in a cold sweat. I turned on the lamp. I wanted to make certain that I had been dreaming. It seemed so real. I got up and walked around the house. I went back to bed, and as I lay there wide awake, I remembered the words of the master, if I had not come and spoken unto them. And then my mind began to think about things that would have been. It was clear to me as I reviewed my dream that if he had not come and spoken to those people, there would have been no sense of sacredness of human life. This dream is a reality in about half of the world today. Life is incredibly cheap in many parts of the world. This is true from Birkenwald, the slave camps of Siberia, the graves that are unmarked in Bosnia. Our worst Western world has many wrongs, yet most of us are always hurt and suffer when other people struggle. Inasmuch as you have done it under one of the least of these, Jesus said, you have done it under me. But what if that said, inasmuch as you do not do this? Well, before Jesus, men tossed babies to the wolves. Now we build hospitals and homes to take care of them. One of the best six years of my life was when I was vice president of Epworth Children's Home in Columbia. And I spent those six years raising money to take care of children. I never had a better blessing than those times. Now we have homes to care for the aged, hospitals for the mentally ill, because we know that human life is sacred. But if Christ had not come, all of this would have been different. Some of you remember Albert Schweitzer, a very gifted person, a musician, a philosopher, a theologian, a missionary, a minister. While he was in Africa, busy healing the wounds and disease of those of the humblest in those days, he tells how he searched for a phrase that would simplify everything about Jesus. And one day when he was paddling up the river, seeing alligators in the water, listening to the birds chatter and the monkeys sing, this phrase came to him in a blinding revelation, reverence for life. Why would we reverence life? Why should we care if babies in Africa and women in Bosnia are killed? Why care when people are degraded? Because this is true. Every tear on earth that flows, God the ruler surely knows. Because when we suffer, God suffers. Because all of us belong to God and he will not let us suffer. If I had not come, they would not have known about the sacredness of life. If he had not come, we would not have known his saving hour in hours of darkness. All of us have had dark and lonely times, loneliness, illness, tragedy, depression, sin, 
And now America, the world, is involved in this coronavirus. What's going to happen? What will happen? Because Jesus came, we know we have his saving and forgiving grace and his mercy. Because he came, we know that the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can never put it out. And then finally, if we, if he had not come, we would have had no word of hope that crowds our troublesome days. Hope gives faith in the future, no matter how ugly the moment. James Russell Lowell said, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold sways the future. Has wrong ever triumphed so much as when Christ was crucified? Has anything ever been more final than Calvary? Caesar on the throne, Herod in his comfortable palace, Pilate secure in Jerusalem, the Pharisees confident in their ecclesiastical authority. But listen carefully now. Was Caesar raised from the dead? Did Herod sway the future? Did Pilate determine the shape of things to come? Did the Pharisees become symbols of human dignity and hope? No. It was a hopeless manger child that grew up to die on the cross. The cross, the scaffold swayed the future. And you can risk your life on that faith. Thank God Christ came. And I can still hear him say, if I had not come and spoken unto them. Napoleon thought he could become great by founding a kingdom. Perhaps it's worth listening to his words of warning. Napoleon said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself found empires, but they rested not upon our genius, but on force. Only Jesus founded an empire on love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. I love this story. You've heard it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter for over 30 years. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book. He never traveled less than 200 miles from where he was born. He never wrote a book or held an office. He did not do the things that we usually associate with greatness. But while he was still a young man, the tide of opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies, went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executors gambled for the one piece of property that he owned, the road that he had. And when he was dead, he was taken and buried in a borrowed tomb. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure for most of the human race. All of the armies that ever marched, and all of the navies that ever sailed, and all of the parliaments that ever sat, and all of the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary figure.
I am so glad that I can say to you, I am so glad he came and spoke to those people. Amen. Psalm 91, I wanted to read this to you. So Psalm 91, it says this, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge. He's my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the coronavirus that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near solid rock. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling place, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift up their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against the corner of your bed in the middle of the night. You will tread on the lion and the snake. You'll trample the great lion and the serpent because God loves you, says the Lord. He'll rescue you. He'll protect you. He will acknowledge you. He will call on you and you will answer him. When you're in trouble, he'll deliver you and he'll honor you. And with long life, the last verse says, with long life, God will satisfy you and show you his salvation. That's my prayer to you today. We love you so much. Look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.